You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Hi there, I'm Derek Voorhees from Boise Bible College, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, serve Hill City in this way. I'm grateful for Josh and the invitation to step in to bring the message this weekend. And I love the partnership that the college has in equipping up the next generation of leaders for Christ's bride. And to be able to do that in partnership with churches like Hill City here in the Treasure Valley is just a real joy for me, for our faculty and our staff, uh, for our alumni. I'm grateful for the team here at Hill City and just love being with you guys. So um, I'm thankful to be able to bring this message in from Ephesians 6 and continue in the series from Ephesians. So let me start it this way, Uh, just thinking about the Oreo cookie. It was designed and introduced in 1912. You know the cookie, just uh, two cookies with that cream filling in the middle of it. In fact, I remember doing some pretty serious pranks with Oreo cookies. You know, you can unscrew them and you can stick them pretty much anywhere. Uh, It's kind of dangerous to do. (laughs) It leaves a mark, but it's a lot of fun. So using that Oreo idea, actually, that's just the, the opposite of... Uh, the Christian journey. It's not the right metaphor, I don't think, for the Christian journey because the journey with Jesus isn't always sweet in the middle. What I mean in the middle is between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We don't always have this nice, creamy, soft middle. C.S. Lewis is a fan of mine. C.S. Lewis pointed out that the biblical teaching kind of describes this dark power in the universe. This dark power that Lewis was talking about is this mighty evil spirit, he says, the power behind death and disease and sin. And then he goes on and says, we're living in enemy-occupied territory in the middle. When one commits their life to following Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, they enter, maybe you didn't know this, you enter into a war You're stepping into a battlefield for righteousness against an enemy that has a stronghold in many ways on many people that we live near and work with. The middle between the first and second, this middle journey of discipleship isn't always soft. It's not always sweet. It's not always tasty like in the middle of Oreo cookie. Uh, It's the presence of the mighty king, though, that actually helps us persevere through the middle. It's kind of what I want to run with, just as a metaphor. I think of George Frederick Handel's Messiah, the big musical, that we have that famous song, the Hallelujah Chorus. You know, the Hallelujah Chorus has this line in it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You know, that's straight from Revelation chapter 11. It's a passage that points triumphantly, victoriously to a time when God will decisively intervene in human history in the middle and strike down the kingdom of this world. (laughs) But did you know? In Handel's Messiah, did you know that that's not the climactic conclusion? The, The crescendo of the holiday course is actually number 44 out of number 53. Songs. It's right in between the first chord and the second chord of this musical. Handel in his Messiah, his musical, he reminds us about victory in Christ in the middle. 
not at the end, but in the middle, such a blessed reality in, in the middle to keep advancing forward. He reminds us that the glory of Christ and his victory triumphantly helps us keep going to the end. I really appreciate what Eugene Peterson said. He said, people who live by faith have a particularly acute sense of living in the middle. Whatever struggle you're facing this, this week, maybe it's something personal that you're, that's causing some unrest, or maybe for a college student, like in my realm, it, there's homework and the new stress and anxiety, or maybe there's something that's a struggle with family or with a friend or with a boss, or the list can go on. I tell you what, living for Jesus in the middle of your faith journey can be a serious struggle, can it? You know this, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it can be wearisome. So we must pray in the middle. We must pray. And scripture actually helps us to know kind of what we could say when we pray, kind of offering some content. For example, just one prayer from Psalm chapter five, the psalmist said this, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Then down to verse 8, he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. And down to verse 11, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread, their, and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Boy, that, you pray that sort of a, those words and phrases in your, in your prayer life this week, I'll tell you what, that will bring some robust faith to you in the middle. And the Apostle Paul knew this. He knew this. He thought that being clothed, if I can use that metaphor, being clothed with Christ's nature, with God's nature, was a necessity for people following Jesus in the middle. It was just that important to withstand the devil's schemes and tactics in the middle. We've got to be strong, and he uses this phrase, in Christ. It's used multiple times throughout the letter. In fact, in Christ or in Jesus or in him or in the Lord is like 35 plus times just in the letter of Ephesians. It's in his strength and is his might and his power, Paul says, that we're closed. Satan tempts us. Satan works to, to distract us and Satan lures us away from Christ by by thinking and behaving some ways that aren't quite aligned. And Satan blindsides us and he challenges us and he attacks us and he pins us down with no mercy. He is not kind. So we must pray. We must pray through it. And as we pray through it, we armor up. We take on the armor of God. We'll talk about that momentarily. You know, prayer continually becomes a way for us to keep a focus on God, keeping our orientation of life each day on him. And prayer is like, I like to think of it as like inhaling and exhaling the presence of God, inhaling and exhaling his wisdom and insight from God's throne. Not just something that we, that we kind of put in our schedule to do, or maybe like over a meal. We, those special times are important, but, but a believer's entire life in the middle is like one large prayer, one large dialogue back and forth to God. When in that we remain armored up as we pray without ceasing. Maybe a good present-day example would be under armor, just that, that clothing that we might wear, it, like being clothed with God's character. Many times being clothed with his character is an armor that's kind of beneath the surface. It's subterranean. God's under armor has to be set in place. 
uh, or else I think we're easy prey for Satan. And that's what Ephesians 6 is for in our Bibles, at least starting in verse 10 and following. Why is it even there in our Bible? I, I think earlier in Ephesians, Paul doubles down to build up the followers of Christ. He wants to build up the believers, reminding them, helping them to recall who they are in Jesus. He's been reminding them for a couple of chapters now and building them up to help them understand their true identity. Because when, they, when it comes to doing something, they first need to know who they are by doing or, or by behaving. Who am I? And Paul's been reminding them throughout the letter. Here's who you are. So he can get to chapter 6 where he says, now do this. Put on the armor of God. Get ready for battle. Until they know who they are, then they won't be able, I don't think, be able to have the backbone to know how to put on the armor, to be assured of who they are in the victor. They can't stand for Jesus until they're first reminded by Paul where their identity is rooted. And all that becomes the basis for what he says in chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, it's a key word. Finally, and out of all that I've said up to this point, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You get it? Only in Christ are we able to stand against opposing spiritual forces that are, that are the antithetical source against the kingdom of God. To stand. Actually, it's a military term. In Paul's day, it would, it would indicate kind of holding a watch post or to stand at a, at a critical position in the battlefield. So here it is. Back in chapter 2, we're seated with Christ. That's one position. Now in chapter 6, we're able to stand for Christ because we are in him. And when Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he's actually referring to a term that all of his readers in ancient Ephesus in the first century, all of his readers I think would have been intimately familiar with. He was drawing an image from the Olympic style games that took place in Asia Minor. The Greek term pale actually was commonly used for that wrestling event in those Olympic games, the wrestling event. And he uses that idea of wrestling because it's one of the main attractions in those games. This struggle, Paul says, clearly speaks of this hand-to-hand -hand wrestling match. Wrestling was a sport that required, if you want to be successful, to be kind of trickery, kind of sneaky, a cunningness, and a strategic maneuvering took place to actually win the wrestling match. And, and it took stamina and spiritual fitness. So get it. The struggle or the wrestling is with unseen powers, not with flesh and blood, not with people. Those are not the, those, they're not the enemy. It's almost like Star Trek with those enemy spacecrafts that kind of put on their cloaking mechanism, and they don't know where that ship went. And I think that's it. The opponent isn't always visible, isn't always easy to spot. And that's why the struggle, this wrestling match, is so important that we put on the armor. The struggle in the middle, I think it's a daily affair. As a Christ follower, it's a constant barrage in this present evil age. And Paul characterizes the evil forces that are kind of against the church and against Christians using several terms. Let me highlight some of these terms. The first couple of terms that we read, rulers or maybe principalities, con connected to authorities. Those couple of Greek words are, are Paul's most common ways to describe demonic spirits. And then he uses the word cosmic rulers or world forces. It's, it's, a, it's a rare term. It's the only time this appears in the whole 
Bible. In other first century Jewish literature outside of the scriptures, it was a term used to describe hostile demonic powers, this world cosmic rulers. That's the term. It appears, for instance, in a Jewish text that documents uh, the activity of 36 demonic spirits. This is a serious word that Paul uses for these Christians to, to, to think about. And then the final word is the spiritual forces. It's a general reference to a variety of all sorts of spirits. And then he kind of tethers all these together. You tether all these influences into one, and you connect it to the pagan goddess Artemis. She was sort of the queen of the underworld in the spiritual realms in the life of an Ephesian citizen. She was the one who had the superior authority over all the fates and all the forces, and she was housed there in Ephesus. It meant being a Christian in Ephesus was a legitimate struggle with the forces and with Artemis. Satan hates devoted followers. He hated those followers in Ephesus. He despises those who commit their life to Jesus to help want to restore hope and restore purpose with friends and with family today. Satan, he wants to take you out. And Paul's saying that in his, with those specific Greek terms. And when you commit your life to be a disciple maker, like one who wants to help others become a disciple for Jesus, you just, we got to be real. All sorts of demonic spirits from hell are unleashed. They're unleashed intent on bringing our demise. Satan does not want the Christian or the church to thrive. He's going to do everything to block our ambassadorship for the Savior of the world. So note this. As Christians, Satan is ruthless. He's ruthless to challenge our faith in Christ, and he will attack us unexpectedly, kind of viciously. Let me illustrate it this way. I heard it's a pretty unsettling, unnerving story about Jay Rathman in his mid-40s. He was hunting in the Tehama Wildlife Area in Northern California, and he was climbing on a ledge on a, on a, on a slope of, of a rocky gorge area, and he raised his head, and he looked over the ledge above, and he sensed some movement to the right of his face. And there coiled up was a rattlesnake, okay, fair warning, <laughs> a rattlesnake, and it struck with lightning speed, and it just missed Rathman's right ear. Now, hold on, this might get a little squeamish, but I want to use this as an illustration. The four-foot snake's fangs got snagged in the neck of Rathman's wool turtleneck sweater, and the force of the snake caused it to land on his left shoulder. And by natural uh, retaliation, I guess, or natural defenses, the snake immediately coiled up around his neck. <laughs> he grabbed it by the head with his left hand, Rathman did. And, and he could feel the warm venom running down the skin of his, of his neck. And the rattles, if you can imagine, just viciously, ferociously creating, creating quite a racket. And he fell backward and he slid head fast or head first down a steep slope through the brush and lava rocks and his rifle and binoculars are with him. And he said, as luck would have it, I ended up wedged between some rocks with my feet caught uphill from my head. <laughs> he was telling the, uh, this to the Department of Fish and Game. He says, I could barely move. <laughs> he got his right hand on his rifle and he used it to disengage the fangs from his sweater. But the snake had enough leverage to strike again. Rathman said this, he made about eight attempts and he managed to hit me with his nose just before my eye about four times. I kept my face turned so he couldn't get a good angle with his fangs, but it was very close. He said, this chap and I were eyeball to eyeball, and I found out the snakes do not blink. <laughs> 
He had fangs like yarning needles, Rathman said. He said, I was afraid, but after holding the snake for about around the neck for 20 minutes, I finally was able to suffocate it. Whew. Rathman's struggle resembles the life of the believer. At the most unsuspecting time, he will pounce upon us. With treacherous strength, Satan's snake-like assaults have this way of knocking us off balance and then kind of wrapping themselves around us and we get entangled and exposed and vulnerable. We can easily succumb and give in to the attacks. If we're not clothed with God's spiritual under armor, these attacks can immobilize us and can paralyze us, rendering us ineffective in the middle. So it is essential that we cultivate the discipline of prayer where we're in, in a posture of complete dependence and complete humility, submitting to the Lord's strength. This continual, constant prayer keeps God's character secure in us and keeps our defenses sensitive to the strikes of the evil one. And when we pray daily, Paul says, we are made strong in the strength of the Lord in his mighty power. And that empowerment in the Lord and wearing the armor of God it's necessary. It's just necessary to keep us mindful of the true opponent. In our day-to-day, -day, people cancel people while the true enemy really continues to exist. The battle's not with mere flesh and with flesh and blood with other image bearers made in the likeness of God. The battle's with the cosmic forces that are splintering and fracturing the image of God in humanity on this planet. And as a community of Jesus, we need each other to stand as one, our identity in Christ and with one another over and against the forces of darkness. It requires us to have much prayer and to pray together as one for one another. Here's a question maybe for you to consider. When was the last time you prayed for your brother or your sister in Christ that you've gotten a little sideways with? When's the last time you prayed for them by name? They're struggling in the middle, you know, just like you are. Maybe different than you are, but everyone's struggling who's following Jesus. So together, together we've got to humbly submit to one another and pray to stand in Christ. And together we pray on the characteristics of God. We pray on the nature and the loving kindness of God. That's sort of our Kevlar, if I can say that. It's sort of our Kevlar that we desperately need in order for us to stand as one unit, one team in the middle. And then we put on, what we put on is described in scripture is, as, as traits of heaven's king come to earth. I like to think of Paul's character traits in Ephesians 6 to be reminded they're drawn from the Old Testament. All of these images are drawn from the Old Testament about the Lord's Messiah, God's Savior, warrior, king, the victor, the conqueror, the anointed one. Through prayer in his name, we are clothed with God. We are clothed with his traits, with his regal characteristics. So listen to how Paul describes the nature of our champion. Listen to what he says. And what I've done is I've taken the liberty just to insert the word his because they're his character traits. As we read the scripture, notice I just put that to make sure to remind us these are his traits. So here's what he says in chapter 6, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of his truth 
and having put on the breastplate of his righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of his peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of his faithfulness, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of his salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's his word. Now, Paul, in his clever way, to make it contextual for the first century Ephesian sisters and brothers in Christ, he connects this unit about God's character to an obvious metaphor, to an obvious visual aid in the first century. Paul pairs the Messiah traits with the Roman military armor. And we get that. Why? Well, it's just common. The Ephesian citizens would have been accustomed to seeing Roman military kind of walking through their city as a part of their normal everyday life. And so Paul borrows that, that everyday visual as a metaphor. So here's the point. The ambassador for Christ is to do everything possible, Paul suggests, as a crisis would demand it, do everything possible to hold a post in the middle, to be able to stand firm. Therefore, it's essential to stand firm, to have the full arrayed armor on, the full armor, and it gets put on in a specific order. The way Paul lists this is actually the way a Roman soldier would have gotten prepared for battle. You put on the belt and the breastplate and the shoes, and then you take up the shield. So one arm has the shield, and then with the other hand, you put on the helmet, and then with the last piece, you take up the sword, and there you're fully arrayed. So get this. How many pieces to the Roman soldier and their armor? Six. How many virtues does Paul highlight here? Six for the Messiah. So what's the significance of six? Well, going back to Artemis for a moment, if Ephesus was the supposed birthplace of that mythological deity called Artemis, Acts chapter 19 talks about her falling from heaven. Artemis, she impacted the entire Asia Minor region. Artemis of Ephesia, as she is known, or Diana would be another name that maybe some are familiar with. She was viewed as the most prominent and most significant cult in Ephesus during the first three centuries of the Roman Empire. The citizens of Ephesus regarded, regarded the city's relationship to Artemis as like a covenant relationship. To them, she was their savior. That was a word that was used in the secular terms. She was the protectress of the city. She was the defender of the people. Artemis possessed this authority, people believed, and this power, the superiority above all the astrological fates. The cult of Ephesian Artemis and its attachment to the banking system in the area had a close connection to the practice of magic in the city, in the region. You know, way before Harry Potter came on the scene, there were, there were six, six magical Ephesian letters inscribed on the cultic image of Artemis. And these letters, these six magical terms, these names, they amounted to six magical words that could be uttered that would, that would constitute some sort of magical spell of protection. The letters of the names were believed to be laden with dark power for the warding off of evil demons. And so Paul uses the Roman soldier, six pieces, and attaches six virtues of the mighty Savior, the mighty God, the Messiah, in order to counter, in order to, to, to go against the six magical spells associated with the dark pagan influences of a false deity. Listen, this isn't something relevant just to that batch of Christians in ancient Ephesus, though. We're in the middle just like they were. 
They were in the middle after Christ's first coming, waiting for a second coming, and we're like them. So synthesize it all together here. The Roman armor, God's divine traits for a believer in contrast to the spiritual opposition that we have, and we have why Ephesians 6 is relevant to us today. Listen, just in brief detail, to God's character traits and what it might mean for our life today as a Christian. Just to walk through these. The first one is the Lord is the God of truth. That's borrowed from the Old Testament Isaiah. God is absolute. God is, has no deception. God puts on the, 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 the idea of truth in, in that he is unchangeable and he is genuine. In his nature, he's fully integrated inside and outside. His truth rests within praying followers of Jesus. So think, thinking about that character trait, in Christ, friends will notice that you are unequivocal like God. You don't waffle. You're genuine. You're integrated inside and out because you're clothed with God's truth. The second trait is the Lord is the God of righteousness. It's his righteousness. Isaiah 59 is this idea God is described as putting on the armor of righteousness in order to come execute judgment. It means God is holy and God is pure and he is just and he is good. His righteousness is and his justness, if I can say it that way, is upon those who pray to him. So those who are in Christ means that friends, family will see that they are just that they're good, they're holy, and they're pure because they're clothed with God's righteousness. The third trait is the Lord is the God of peace. Again, borrowed from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52, which describes God's people, Israel, as messengers of good news for the nations. How beautiful are the feet of those who go with good news on behalf of God to the nations. God is desirous to extend the Hebrew word shalom, he's, he's desirous to extend peace, gospel hope to humans of all, of all nations. So clothed with God's peace in Christ today, I think friends will see you, see me, living out God's will as a bridge builder, as a messenger of saving hope beyond any reason to any person. The fourth character trait is the Lord is the God of faithfulness. That's borrowed from Deuteronomy 33 or 20 times in the book of Psalms. This is used of God. God is described as a God of faithfulness. It means he's loyal. It means he won't abandon those he's in covenant relationship with. He keeps the covenant. He won't let anything separate him from his covenant bearers. We, therefore, clothed with his faithfulness in Christ means that friends will see you as a committed colleague in the community of Jesus covering each other's backs. You're faithful. And as one, we are covered with his favor as with a shield. Remember we prayed that earlier from Psalm chapter 5? So that together we can withstand. We can withstand the stealthy, seductive darts of the evil one by the aid of God's covenant, loyal love. We're shielded as a cohort, as a community in the middle. His faithfulness helps us. The last or the fifth trait is the Lord is a God of salvation. Of course, this is his salvation. For those who are in Christ are saved, but this is not about my salvation. It's about his salvation. Again, from Isaiah 59, God is described as armoring himself with his salvation when he comes to judge. God straps on salvation when he brings justice. That means he is a rescuing God, a restoring God. He salvages people. So in Christ, friends will see you living as one who's rescued, grateful to show hope, to, to carry that out in life for others to become saved and to tell your story. 
And lastly, the Lord is the God of communication. Uh, the God, it's God's sword of the spirit. His word and his instrument by which his power has shown. You know, his word in Genesis, he spoke creation by word and things came to existence. In Psalm chapter 107, he speaks and there's healing. In Isaiah chapter 11, he speaks and there's judgment. That means God's word is exact and effective and fruitful whenever he speaks. So in Jesus, I think friends will see you walking to the beat of a different drummer, guided by the message of God's grace and God's truth driven by the Spirit of God because the message is effective and it's empowered by His abiding presence. Those are the six traits that Paul says in prayer we armor up and we put on. Since the Lord consists of these traits, since they define Him, those who are in Him are actually defined by them. Those who are in Jesus and have His traits actually become defined by Him. So are you defined by His traits is the question that we should ask ourselves. Am I defined by truth, His truth? Am I being defined by His righteousness, by His peace? Is His faithfulness a definition point for me? Is His rescue and His word defining me? Are you clothed with His virtues? Are you praying them on your family? Are you praying them on your relationships? Are you praying them on your life group? Now, these virtuous pieces of armor that protect God's community, they're only in the front. Did you pick up on that? Maybe you've heard that before. These pieces of armor are only in the front. Nothing covers the backside. <laughs> There's nothing covering your rear. There's no retreating, I think is what Paul said. And the Roman soldier actually demonstrated that. The, the wearing of these virtues means as hard as the struggle might be in the middle, until he returns, we advance together. And so putting on the armor of God is really more of a collective habit than a personal one. And as we each do the discipline of praying to be armored up, we influence those around us. We influence the community that we're in. As we get prayed, praying and we get armored up, then we help those around us. And if we're delinquent in our prayer habit, if we're delinquent in that, in praying daily, then the armor of God upon us will actually affect those around us. It will slip, fall away, maybe even not stay attached. So here's an idea. Just consider this. What if... What if we got more into the habit of praying unselfishly to armor up our spouse or our significant other? What if we prayed to armor up our roommate or to armor up our Christian leader? What if we prayed for them to be armored up, knowing and trusting that they're praying for me to be armored up? What if we did that? Pray on the armor and remain alert through prayer, through prayer, wearing Wearing that, it, it's not just for the health and safety of your life, it's for the health and safety of the church, for the community to protect and defend our survival, but also for the advancing, for the forward motion and our reflection of, of our witness as we step forward, even through treacherous days. Paul asked that, actually. In verse 19 of chapter 6, Paul said, Pray also for me. Pray for me, church, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, nowhere else in the New Testament is such a charge issued 
for a community of believers. At least Paul never asks another church quite the same way to say, pray for me as I speak in the middle. <laughs> Being fully clothed for battle in the middle is every Christ follower's responsibility. And Paul needed the church to pray for him. We need each other to pray for us. So any exposed opening in the unit's armor could cause vices to supersede the virtues of God and erode the church's advancing witness. What's the securest position from which to stand against the devil's schemes? What's the securest position and posture? Kneeling as one in prayer. In fact, Paul says in verse 18, these characteristics take root only by praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's an absolute necessity for disciples of Jesus to cultivate the discipline of prayer. The overlap between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming is a period that will test our mettle. It will really test to see how devoted we are. It will cause doubt. These middle days will, will create division. But endurance calls for a strong prayer habit. Our, our spiritual armor is enabled only through intimate conversational prayer with God on a daily basis, not just for myself, but for one another. So here's another idea, a practical expression of this. You know, throughout the scriptures, the ninth hour is something that's highlighted. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon on the clock, 3 p.m. Powerful works of God happened in the ninth hour throughout scripture. For example, in Matthew 20, there's a parable Jesus gives of, of a master, and he hired laborers Late laborers in the middle afternoon, they were just as valued as the earlier laborers. And of course, we know at the ninth hour from the gospel accounts, the gospels record Jesus dies at the ninth hour for eternal salvation to happen. In the book of Acts, in the ninth hour, Peter and John healed a lame beggar. And we know in Acts chapter 10, in the ninth hour, Cornelius, he received a vision from God atop his roof to include Gentiles, that he would be included. And Peter took that and brought in Cornelius in his household. Several things happened powerfully in the ninth hour. So here's what I like to propose. Significant works happen in the ninth hour. So what if? What if as a church, each of us set an alarm for three in the afternoon to pray? To pray. To pray in Jesus' name in the victorious ninth hour of Jesus' death and, and the vision of Gentiles being included in this covenant people group and those various other examples. What if we prayed and we expected God to do a 3 p.m. ninth hour sort of a work? What if we prayed and we looked for the day drawing near and we prayed on our knees and every afternoon with, with determination, we had it cemented and we completed God's tasks by kneeling in the middle of the, of the day and praying, trusting he would armor us up together in the middle. Well, it's a pretty amazing chapter. I don't think it's a fearful chapter. I think it's an invigorating chapter. It gets us going. So let me ask you this as we close. Are you interested in joining this? It's kind of daunting. But the task, the goal, the end goal, and the joy of surrendering our life in gratitude to Jesus means signing up. And if you'd like to sign up to actually say, I'd like to get into Jesus, I need those character traits in my life, go to the website, sign up, see what it means to commit your life to Jesus. If you've committed your life to Jesus, I'd implore you 
Let's continue to work that discipline of armoring ourselves up in prayer this week. Let's pray for just a moment. Jesus, thank you for sharing your traits with us. It's our desire to yield ourselves to you, for you to strengthen us, to clothe us, to infuse us with your very presence. We need your traits of character today. We need them because it's a tough battlefield that we're stepping into. And I'm praying for each person, a part of this church, as they continue to plod forward to be faithful, to trust you, to be prayer warriors for one another. Thanks for hearing us. Thanks for covering us as with a shield, with your favor, as you bend your ear to us. We are grateful to you, O oh God, for not leaving us alone in the middle. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.